Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network Media and Communication Podcast. I'm Monica Wilkie, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Thomas Winslow Hazlett about his new book, The Political Spectrum, The Tumultuous Liberation of Wireless Technology from Herbert Huber to the Smartphone. Tom, welcome to the channel. Hello, thank you for having me. So before we get into the meat of the book, can you just give us a brief bio about yourself? Uh, I'm an economist. I teach at Clemson University. Previously, I was at George Mason University, uh, the Wharton School, and the University of California at Davis. I also served as chief economist for the Federal Communications Commission in Washington, D.C., and I've been writing for a long time about uh, telecommunications, information policy, internet and media. Excellent. And what was the inspiration for this particular book? There are great stories involved with how we regulate wireless and of course the whole issue of spectrum allocation has become increasingly important in the modern world european regulators call it the economic oxygen of modern society more importantly how political uh, machinations have gotten between consumers and innovators and uh, if we maybe had a little bit better understanding of this we'd uh, really have an appreciation of our world and and be able to have uh, more streamlined mechanisms that uh, actually give us uh, uh, more of what technology offers. Excellent. So let's dive straight into the book now. So you start off by saying, quote, no natural resource is likely to be more critical to human progress in the 21st century than the radio spectrum, end quote. Can you first of all explain what the radio spectrum is and second of all, why it's so important? Well, wireless is an interesting technology because it's named for what it's not. Uh, It is communications across dead space without the need for any physical links. And it's always seemed like a bit of a magic trick. So, yeah, you ask a great starting question. What is radio spectrum? In the early days, 100 years ago, uh, it was actually thought that communication signals, which had been discovered uh, and tamed in some respect, uh, that those signals traveled through a gaseous substance called the ether. Uh, It turns out that's not true. There is just uh, the ability for radio waves to travel in dead space. And when we talk about the radio spectrum, we're talking about that space where uh, we can communicate by sending signals from one radio to another. You mentioned before when I asked you about the inspiration for this book that you said that you feel that there's a disconnect between what the public understands about these issues. I think just then when you were talking about the radio spectrum, do you think some of that disconnect comes from a fundamental misunderstanding about wireless technology and the radio spectrum? Uh, Yes. I mean, some of it uh, has always seemed like a bit of a magic trick. And uh, in in fact, uh, about 100 years ago, a chief justice of the United States Supreme Court 
uh, said that he hoped there were no radio cases to come to the court because he didn't want to dive into the law of the occult. Uh, even in 1939, when television was being debuted at the New York World's Fair, the promoters came up with a demonstration television set uh, that was glass in case, made specifically that way to counter rumors that there was no transmission uh, taking place. There were actually tiny actors on a miniature stage inside the box, and they wanted to show people it was basically all electronics and tubes, and um, it, it was not a trick. Uh, so there is some confusion. There always has been. Uh, although I will say today, of course, kids grow up with wireless really is just background. It's a social amenity. Uh, kids obviously are on their phones very quickly and often. And, um, we, in some sense, we take it for granted. And, and I think that's probably an improvement. The, the idea that radio waves can be uh, very valuable applications in everyday life. Uh, that's an important perspective. It's a lot better than people uh, were accustomed to certainly uh, in the in the early days of wireless. You just pointed out then that kids these days, the younger generation, tend to be on their phones all the time. It's sort of almost second nature that technology. You point out in the book that there's currently six billion wireless phone users. That is more people than who own a toothbrush or have access to a working toilet. Talk us through a bit of the history about how we arrived at that point. And I just wanted to note, as a point of interest, I think it's rather apt that we're conducting this interview during the 10th anniversary celebrations of the iPhone. Exactly. It's an important event. And uh, 10 years ago, uh, of what was yet to happen with the amazing innovation that's come not just through the Apple platform, but through competing platforms like Google Play uh, that have been established essentially as competitive responses, and uh, we're getting a lot more interplay between the forces of innovation today than previously because we have liberalized our regulatory systems. And that's uh, a remarkably a success story. We don't hear many of those in public policy. You go to a great deal of depth surrounding the various regulations that govern this space. You just mentioned then that we have liberalized and that would go some way to allowing new technologies to form. We'll go into that a little bit later. But in the first chapter of the book, you mention a speech that was given in 1961 by the Federal Communications Commission. You describe the speech as someone who was lecturing industry elites as if they were schoolboys. But you also point out that newspapers lauded the moment. Can you talk us through this moment and explain its significance? Uh, sure. The Yeah, it is the most famous speech ever given by an Amer American regulator, May 9th, 1961. The chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, regulating Spectrum, uh, delivers a lecture, very stern uh, lecture, to the, uh, to the executives from the television and radio broadcasting industries, but more pointed at television, which was described by the government regulator as a vast wasteland that, in fact, licenses were being issued in the public interest uh, to private companies to provide television service. Uh, and, in fact, they were squandering the opportunity serving the public. They were delivering mindless sitcoms and uh, violent westerns and an endless stream of commercials, which the chairman uh, of the FCC said was appalling. So he, he threatened to do uh, much more on the regulatory front. Uh, there was a new uh, cop on the beat, 
and he was going to go back to Washington, D.C. and tighten up the procedures for renewing those licenses to make sure that the uh, vast wasteland uh, somehow improved. You state as well in this same chapter, quote, the FCC could not openly state that it acted from naked protectionism. It needed a, quote, public interest justification, end quote. What were some of the justifications used to usher in these various acts and orders? Well, what happened in the event was that the uh, the chairman of the FCC, after lecturing the industry, did not go back to Washington to make things, in, in fact, quite the opposite. Uh, what the regulators did at that point was to very pointedly and aggressively intervene in the marketplace to stop the rise of cable television, which was building out in cities across America as a competitor, bringing in extra video content, new choices, and more diverse viewing fare, uh, trying to undermine the broadcast United States, a triopoly with ABC, CBS, and NBC being the three national networks, all that could exist under uh, government rules. The uh, fact was that the federal protected the broadcasting industry, even at the instant that it accused that industry of promoting a vast wasteland. And the public interest rationale was that the new emerging medium, cable TV, would never be a complete competitive national platform. It would only be a niche competitor, and it should not be allowed to undermine the existing broadcasting structure, which delivered news, information, and public affairs programming that were vital to the health of a democracy. So to protect the public, the government actually stepped in to protect private companies from competition. And that turned out to be a complete misreading of the situation and a very costly error for the American public because finally uh, in the late 1970s when cable TV was unleashed, deregulated if you will, the, uh, the, the fact soon became apparent that there had been almost no public affairs programming on broadcast television which was the regulated medium and the public affairs and news 24-7 news channels like CNN developed very quickly under an unregulated environment of greater competitive force so that's what happens finally by the 1980s and 90s when there is a, um, uh, a liberalization and you do find that there's more competition allowed you get way more news information and public affairs programming you mentioned then that the justification for a lot of these regulations was in the interest of the public, but that was a complete misread of the situation. Do you think the metric public interest, which the Commission is still bound by, is useful or is it too broad? Uh, it's, it's certainly far too broad. Now, it, it's in, in, in determining what, what's public interest and what's private interest, um, it, it's not disingenuousness. People, whether they be regulators or whether they be in the industry or whether they be uh, uh, public uh, advocates, they, they, they firmly believe in honest, best for society, even if they happen to conform to the, uh, you know, the financial and career self-interest. The, the, the regime, the structure has uh, a significant design flaw, and that is that limiting competition inherently invokes social cost monopoly, 
reducing rivalry in the marketplace and cutting down on diversity, experimentation, and innovation. By its very nature, it forces new ideas to run through a political conflict interest to change and in many cases destroy very important and productive ideas that consumers, uh, listeners prefer to have uh, in front of them as uh, choices. So the it, it's the structure of regulation, which in the United States officially dates to the 1927 Radio Act, now 90 years old, that has been in place and has deterred so much uh, promotion of uh, tremendous entrepreneurship uh, when we do liberalize the rules and we see what happens with things like 10 years ago, the iPhone being uh, allowed to come into the market without the, the strictures and restrictions of, uh, of decades ago and in a more uh, open and free environment and then bring in tremendous innovation uh, and, uh, and new ideas. You did just briefly mention the Radio Act of 1927 there. On that particular decision, the U.S. Supreme Court wrote, the allocation of frequencies was left entirely to the private sector. The result was chaos. What do you make of this decision, and do you think it still holds weight today? So the official interpretation of what happens early in the radio market in the United States has enormous importance in the United States and in fact around the world as describing a, uh, a historical reality to many people uh, that is entirely unreal. That is to say that only uh, the government could rationalize the use of airwaves and in fact there was no other way to do it. That In fact central allocation, uh, administrative rules about how radios could be used, what services they could provide, what technologies were deployed. All that had to be organized centrally by some uh, commission or agency. That is that is actually not what happens in the United States. There is a um, uh, an initial discovery of radio broadcasting in 1920. Over 500 stations almost instantly come on the air. There is potential conflict between these high-powered broadcasters uh, who could uh, and in some cases did conflict or interfere with one another. But standard common law rules were actually used initially to mitigate the uh, conflict between the stations, and those rules were enforced under an existing statute by the U.S. Department of Commerce. Now, the system worked very well, and millions of radios were, were uh, produced and then sold in the United States. This all happens between 1920 and 1926. But uh, certain interests wanted a lot more regulation. Those interests included the Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, who later became president. He was a very, uh, in many senses, forward-thinking uh, and strategic uh, regulator who wanted uh, more government control over who would broadcast and what they would say. He, he saw radio as an emerging medium of public influence, and government should have a, a more of a hand in determining who spoke and what they said. The incumbent radio broadcasters, the successful commercial stations, those owners actually believed that they needed some rules to limit new entry into the market, uh, to stabilize their investments, and in fact, to protect them from additional rivalry. So those interests got together, public and private, and in fact, uh, created the 1927 Radio Act. It was not done because of necessity over interference in the airways. Quite the reverse. It was done because of conflicts in Washington, D.C. 
The thing that I particularly like about your book is the way that you you go through the history and you use specific examples. I think it makes it very accessible to people that don't have a legal background or an understanding of the policy space. You did just mention Herbert Hoover then when he was at the time Secretary Hoover, and there was a particular incident you recount in the book involving a reverend who pioneered the use of radio for Christian evangelicalism. Can you just describe the impact that this particular moment and Hoover had on the policy space? Sure. And uh, very kindly for um, your words about uh, making the book accessible, obviously. Uh, when you write a book like this, uh, you know, you have to training on the on, on the reader and uh, hopefully has a lot of interesting history in it. I think there's some great historical stories that deserve to be told. So one of them, uh, you put your finger on one of my favorites, uh, this idea later uh, made famous by the United States Supreme Court that there was chaos prior to the 1927 Radio Act can be uh, seen for, you know, for, for, for a myth. Uh, on a number of grounds, but one was this one particular episode where a uh, one of the early uh, radio evangelists, uh, Amy Semple McPherson, who was a rather sensational character in Los Angeles, uh, whose church was extremely successful, very popular, built a huge temple uh, where three or four thousand people per service multiple times per day would attend uh, her church. Uh, she bought a radio transmitter in 1923 in Los Angeles and broadcast. And uh, what happens is she uh, gets uh, notice from the Department of Commerce. This is prior to the 1927 Radio Act when the Federal Radio Commission takes over. But the Department of Commerce enforcing first come, first serve rules was monitoring radio stations, found out that the uh, church uh, transmitter run by McPherson had strayed from its wavelength. She sends an angry telegram to the Department of Commerce saying, uh, please order your minions of Satan to cease and desist. Uh, the Lord will figure out what wavelengths he wants to broadcast on. Well, uh, in fact, the station was closed and it opened back up when uh, <laughs> the, the uh, Foursquare Gospel uh, Church um, actually went back on its assigned wavelength. So there were rules of the road. This was a sensational uh, individual episode that actually shows up in Herbert Hoover's memoirs. Uh, so he, he remembered it fondly as well. But uh, uh, the, the church got back on its wavelengths and essentially so did everybody else until 1926 when Hoover, at Commerce specifically, Specifically, backed away uh, from uh, enforcing these first-in-time uh, uh, rules of the road or ownership rights uh, for radio transmissions. So when you recount that story in your book, you talk about the establishment of the independent agency, the Federal Radio Commission. Now, you've mentioned several times when you were talking about policy how various interest groups had a adverse impact on this space. I'll just read you a quote. With strong industry support, the FRC sought to extinguish any broadcaster with a cause. The result over time was a homogenized, lowest common denominator programming, much like that described as a vast wasteland. Did the FRC go beyond its remit? And do you think that the establishment of such powerful commissions are inevitably going to go beyond? 
what the the scope of what they're supposed to do. Uh, I, I think that the, they were not beyond the scope of what they were intended to do. I believe that the public interest standard was advanced as a very malleable rule that allowed political influence into the system directly. So what you have with the Federal Radio Commission, 1927, it is created in the Radio Act. Literally by 1929, there is something that later becomes called the Fairness Doctrine, where radio stations are given renewals or not based upon their programming and whether the government agrees with how they're communicating. One case I talk about in the book, there's a station in Chicago called WCFL, uh, owned by the Chicago Federation of Labor. And it was an explicitly pro-trade union radio station that had very strong political views. And in fact, the labor union had purchased uh, the radio station in 1926 for 250,000 US dollars, specifically to get its views out to the public. In 1929, it's not only coming up for a license renewal, it's asking for higher power and uh, longer hours. It was a daytime only station. And in reviewing this request, the commission comes back with a very negative uh, conclusion, which is that the station is not acting in the public interest because it's putting out its own partisan view. Propaganda stations, that's a quote, propaganda stations, uh, inimical to the public interest. We have the scarce natural resource of radio spectrum being used by particular viewpoints to espouse That was thought to be wrong, even though it clearly was an engagement of free speech by people with a point of view. So this is uh, where the public interest went. It went there quickly. I don't think it was a surprise to Congress and the policymakers who enacted that policy. I think uh, despite the deleterious consequences for free speech that extend into many decades and in fact result in a vast wasteland, just as you say, it it took uh, the spice, uh, whether it be left or right or uh, other, you know, out of the out of the mainstream viewpoints out of the mix. It, it gave us a very bland product where uh, some of this free speech was was simply missing. You mentioned free speech a couple of times then. In one part of the book, you discuss the urge that government has to control the media. You give examples from China and the UK. Given the First Amendment in the US Constitution, do you think that your mar- the American market is more protected from such interferences or is it just as possible to have negative consequences from, as you say, these sort of regulations in regards to curtailing free speech? That's a great question. And, uh, you know, there have been there have been volumes written on that. and There will be volumes more. Um, I, I would say that the, the you know, the easiest answer is to say that the U.S. does have a difference in terms of the constitutional protection of free speech. Uh, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or of the press. The question became instantly whether or not radio stations and then to follow them television stations were a part of the press. Uh, it, it was impossible for the government and the courts that interpreted the law to say that the uh, new emerging electronic media were not a part of the press 
But because of the involvement of spectrum allocation, the courts were willing to say that they were a different part of the newspapers or magazines or book publishing industries. And so they got lesser protection. And so the United States does move to a, uh, a regime that for the U.S. was a little funny. It got around an explicit stricture in the Constitution saying the government could not regulate content. And so in that sense, we move closer to what other countries might have had and, and towards this general enthusiasm on the part of uh, uh, public actors, often encouraged by private interest, to, to step in and to regulate the content of electronic speech. In that, you were just talking about how one of the main contentions regarding the First Amendment came from whether these technologies were seen as part of the press. In, in relation to the First Amendment, is there also a difference in the way that corporations and individuals are treated? So, for example, you might say that the government can't interfere with an individual's right for free speech, but using the public interest justification, then they could step in in regards to regulating corporations? There is that influence and strain in U.S. law, and 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 does not have the same First Amendment rights, and particularly when it has to do with something like advertising. But the problem you have when uh, dealing with this, the problem you have uh, on the regulatory side, is that uh, virtually all the major media outlets, the CBS, uh, Columbia Broadcasting Corporation, uh, Columbia Broadcasting System. Uh, all these um, outlets uh, are owned by corporations, and so it's it's hard to have a First Amendment uh, if the New York Times can be regulated because it's owned by the New York Times company. So traditionally, tried to shave uh, the rights of the media organizations uh, based upon their ownership by individuals versus corporations. Talking about the different technological innovations. You talk about the radio inventor Edwin Howard Armstrong and his breakthrough creation of frequency modulation, better known as FM. What was the significance of such a breakthrough? So Armstrong was one of the great 20th century inventors, and he was instrumental in the early AM radio technologies that came in uh, predominantly in the 1920s and created the broadcasting industry. Uh, in 1934, plus or minus, Armstrong invents a new competitor to AM called FM, and it's better in his mind. Signals travel farther, and the radio product, the audio tone, is absolutely superior. It gets rave reviews from experts. He has to go get radio spectrum for his radios. And that takes several years. Finally, due to his persistence in spending uh, much of his fortune um, in, in the radio industry uh, on his new uh, innovation, uh, he's able to get by the Federal Communications Commission. And by the late 30s, early 40s, he has constructed a chain of broadcasting facilities in the northeastern United States and uh, some 500,000 radio consoles have been sold. Now, these were the big, expensive, uh, cabinet-sized radio receivers, so it was not uh, any small uh, a token of success to, to sell half a million of those. But World War II strikes, and in uh, late 1941, when the U.S., 
um, uh, enters World War II, that ends for the time being all civilian production of radios. And in fact, Edwin uh, Armstrong, who was a professor at Columbia, uh, goes uh, into the U.S. military to build radios for the Allied war effort. 1945, the war is ending. Uh, projections for the growth of FM are absolutely explosive. Five million radios a year uh, say the experts will be sold because of the uh, high fidelity sound quality and the excellent uh, reception of the audience uh, that had been getting the, the FM radio signals on the allocation just before the war. But what happens is the television interests are emerging and they attack set aside for FM. And in fact, the regulators on totally spurious uh, non-scientific grounds, uh, problem, literally a problem of sunband, and they uproot all the frequencies used by FM radios and change the entire allocation. And that destroys the industry. Quite obviously, it makes worthless all the transmitters, all the receivers. And there was not even new technology at the time to use the um, the allocation provided. That took several years. When it finally is in place, it's very difficult to sell radios to people who heard product but became totally worthless when you bought the receiver after a couple of years. So what happens is Armstrong is devastated, becoming despondent over the death of this great FM radio service. He actually commits suicide in 1954. The end of that story, and, and if you will, a, an equal play, a level playing field, when, when it's actually allowed to compete uh, finally in the 1960s, uh, FM radio quickly surpasses AM radio in, in uh, not only quality but audience size. And by the 1970s and the rock and roll years, uh, FM radio is dominant uh, uh, because of its excellence. That was the end product that Armstrong, because of the spectrum allocation system, never lived to see. You said then that some of the regulations were based on faulty scientific conclusions and also the idea that they were needed to avoid chaos. You talk about Roland Harry Corse, the British economist. What were some of his observations regarding regarding this type of reasoning? So, yeah, Coase was a fascinating uh, uh, Englishman, became an economist at the London School of Economics, and then um, this is now the 1950s. Uh, he had written a book on the BBC, so he was interested in broadcasting, and while in the U.S., took a look at the Federal Communications Commission and how airways were regulated. And he was operating, of course, in a different world. He didn't know what the iPhone or a mobile telephone, uh, uh, cellular telephone network was, but he did see the existing broadcasting system and thought it was highly imperfect. And that whatever people said about chaos in the airwaves, that rights could be defined such that competition governed how uh, an actual band was used rather than a central plan. And he advocated that. He, he, he thought it should be done on an experimental basis, perhaps, to see what the problems in real world application were, but thought that the existing system was so highly imperfect it might merit uh, a shift to a more competitive view. Uh, he was roundly, uh, well, savaged. He was derided, mocked, and dismissed uh, as a kook. 
and uh, both in front of the Federal Communications Commission and in think tanks and uh, in, in other forums where industry experts and even academic experts uh, literally said that Coase had no idea of what he was talking about. It turns out that Coase became a well-known, well-respected economist and uh, some years later, 1991, won the Nobel Prize in Economics for ideas that directly came out of his consideration of how radio spectrum might be allocated. Uh, I should say that the Coase, who lived to be 102, just passed away in the year 2013, uh, did live long enough, unlike unfortunately, Edwin Howard Armstrong, to see that his ideas did make it to the market because a lot of liberalization happened in the subsequent decades, maybe some of it because of Coase's visionary suggestions, but also because the inefficiencies of the old system blocking technologies like FM radio was was, was having a bad effect on break new ground in terms of reform. And by the 1980s, much more competition is being allowed into the market. By the 1990s, wireless licenses are being put out that have great flexibility so that the government does not micromanage what technology networks might develop. And so you get, by the 2000s, you get this wonderful confluence between innovation coming out of the computer sector and open opportunity in wireless. And those in the iPhone, literally 10 years ago, June 2007, the iPhone marches into the market, just like Edwin Howard Armstrong, Steve Jobs, and Apple needed radio spectrum for their new radio, but they didn't have to go to the government and ask permission. They were actually able to go into the marketplace, and they were able to offer their phone to rival carriers that competed with one another to try to get new radios and consumer-pleasing applications into their space. And in fact, the carriers in the United States and then soon after all over the world uh, were successful in partnering with Apple to get the iPhone everywhere. The, the Apple uh, not only creates a, an entirely new mode of wireless, they trigger uh, almost a very important competition from uh, arch rival Google and the new Google Play platform using the Android software. And you get competing ecosystems in wireless, all without any uh, important government regulation other than a backdrop of uh, rules associated with which firms have control over what spectrum. Competition does the rest of the work from there. And so in that more competitive mode, you're able to see tremendous innovations It would clearly have been blocked. The technology of the iPhone now with, you know, you can walk around with a, a phone and a computer and a map in your pocket seems worlds apart from the technology of an FM radio. But the way you've laid out the regulations and how everything progress, progressed and the work of Armstrong and course and that, pretty much if it wasn't for those original innovations and mistakes in terms of policy and over-regulation, we wouldn't have the iPhone today. Uh, I, I absolutely believe that, that the, uh, that the missteps and the idea that people saw the missteps, and it wasn't just Coase from the outside as an academic, it was in, in, in Coase, uh, when he left um, uh, England, went to the University of Virginia and then to uh, the University of Chicago, uh, where he was uh, very famous towards the end of his career, but uh, uh, that regulators themselves were looking at some of the failures 
uh, and some of the long, long uh, delays that have been brought to the market. Just, just for example, cellular telephone technology seems like it's a new, a new phenomenon to most people. But in fact, the United was talking about the new cellular technology in the year 1945. And the chairman of the FCC actually said it would, wouldn't take long, just a little while to get licenses out. Well, it took until 1984 to 1989, I mean, a delay of decades before that technology was actually authorized to use radio spectrum. Uh, it, it, uh, you know, this, this, was, this was a problem, uh, not just to the marketplace, not just to consumers who were not well informed about the things they weren't getting, uh, and not just to, to scientists and technologists who were frustrated. It was also a problem for well-meaning regulators who did have an interest in public policy that would advance uh, social welfare and they were frustrated by the by the simple structure of of uh, regulation and, and how difficult it was uh, for you know for any forward momentum so th there are multiple visionaries in the book uh, Ronald Coase is one of the academics but there are many policymakers who are also trying to point the way to a more liberal order one of my favourite parts of the book is when you recount an anecdote in which you were contacted by an attorney from the FCC who told you, quote, we want an economic study showing that satellite radio won't take any revenues from terrestrial radio broadcasts, end quote. What was happening in the policy space at this time and what was your reaction to such a request? So that, that goes back to the uh, early to mid-1990s when there was a satellite radio technology that was ready for prime time. And uh, the idea was that through a subscription service or maybe just distributed free on advertising, you might get um, a new radio that would receive signals uh, on a, in the U.S. or any other place. It, uh, not limited, of course, the technology not limited to one market. Uh, you could get a whole uh, uh, programs to compete with terrestrial, plain old uh, AM, FM radio. And in fact, the terrestrial radio stations were very much opposed to this. Uh, they said, we do the public interest. We provide news information and public affairs programming important to the democracy, and you will undermine that if companies come in with satellite radio not doing local programming and compete with us. And so what the satellite advocates wanted to do was actually show the regulators that they wouldn't have an adverse economic impact on the existing companies. Of course, that was absurd. The, the basic point was to compete in the market. And when you compete in the market, you do, you, you know, you're you trying to get revenues and you're trying to, to come up with something better. Now, it, it's not all a net loss. In fact, the, the great thing about competition is that it's a net gain for society and the, the benefits exceed the cost. But that wasn't the argument. The argument uh, was, oh, there can't be any harm. Now, here, here's, here's the upshot. After seven years of... Uh, of serious argument and delay, 1990 to 1997, there were licenses issued in an auction in the United States, and two new uh, satellite radio companies got launched and started offering service by about the year 2000, 2001, XM and Sirius. Now, in 2007, 2008, they later merged, and there is an XM Sirius satellite radio today that has about 30 million subscribers. And even to this day, that service cannot do 
local programming. By law, all their service in the United States has to be nationally broadcast. So, yes, they can. There is, there is a First Amendment and there is the right of the satellite broadcaster to talk about what happens in Miami. And you can do news, weather, and sports for Miami. But you have to broadcast it in New York City, in Boston, in Seattle, and San Francisco. You have to use up all that bandwidth nationwide, even though satellite systems have the ability to pinpoint local programs and to actually have different, diverse local programs across different, diverse local communities. The irony of the whole thing is that this anti- this anti-localism program or, or, or the ban on local programming is said to protect localism. That's because the terrestrial broadcasters say, no, we're the local broadcasters. We're not national. We just serve Philadelphia or Dallas or, or Los Angeles. So protect us from the national programmer. Make sure the national satellite radio system cannot do local programming. But in terms of the development of new technologies moving forward, particularly with the rapid rate at which technology is taken up by the public, where do you see this policy space moving forward? In the U.S. and in other countries where the regulatory system is focused on an administrative determination of how airwaves are used, there's just too much inefficiency. There's too much pretty amazing new stuff coming out of the laboratory to keep it bottled up in these years and decades long regulatory proceedings. And we've already gotten a lot of liberalization, as I've mentioned, and, and that has provided proof of concept that these markets can work, they can allocate airwaves in a very reasonable way, and they beat the alternative, which is the go slow method where incumbent interests and you know bureaucracies that move at a snail's pace to begin with come together to, to sandbag process uh, on the table. We, we can see the future. We have moved actually very little of the productive radio spectrum, however, into that more liberal environment. There may be 15% of the entire productive band in the United States that really has been moved forward. And the U.S. is relatively progressive on this. Uh, and there are many other countries around the world, including, by the way, Australia and, and New Zealand and, and even some Central American countries that have done some very uh, forward-looking experiments with liberalization. So we, we've seen what can happen, uh, but we just haven't done enough of it. And there's a lot of spectrum that's bought be the 1952 TV allocation in the United States or military set-asides that just take up way too much radio space, don't really help the military, and, and, and block uh, amazing new services that could help society overall. So we are headed, in my opinion, towards, uh, given the 1927 Radio Act and the radio politics of Herbert Hoover, I think we're, we're headed to a much better place. And the question is, how fast can we get there? How, how uh, policymakers be to institute uh, new and better policies that actually get Spectrum out into a competitive mold and, and, and allow good ideas to get into the market for the, for, for the ideas that don't work to be discarded quickly and to move on to supporting new and better technologies. And, um, you know, I, I just I'm very optimistic that that certainly over 10, 20, 30 years that we're going to have significant and continuing changes in the in the political spectrum. 
We, we like to end on an optimistic note. So before we let you go, what are you working on now? <laughs> I'm trying to sell a book. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you, it's, it's great. I, I do have another book in line, of course, and it's on the, the structure of the Internet. And uh, I, I hope that within a couple of years that's ready for prime time. Well, we'll have to get you back then. So, Tom, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you for, for your excellent questions and for reading the book. I, I, uh, I am impressed. You're welcome. The book is The Political Spectrum, The Tumultuous Liberation of Wireless Technology from Herbert Hoover to the Smartphone. The author is Thomas Hazlett, and the book is currently available on Amazon. Thank you for your time, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.